Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. Today's episode is a by-the-book conversation with Chuck DeGroat about a book that he published several months ago called When Narcissism Comes to Church. And by way of introduction to this episode, I do want to let you know that Chuck and I recorded this conversation several months ago, actually just in the weeks leading up to the presidential election, so back in October of 2020. And so I wanted to preface this for you. I've had several other conversations that were in the works as well as our working through the book of Revelation on the podcast as a whole, and I intended to space out these conversations every several weeks, and Chuck's is up for this week, and so I'm excited to pass this on to you. Many of you, this might be the first podcast episode you've listened to on Unbinding the Bible, and I'd like to welcome you here if you came onto the podcast just to listen to Chuck. You've chosen a good one. I'm excited to share with you about a 50-55 minute conversation that Chuck and I had about his book where we get into all sorts of topics, individual and interpersonal um, narcissism as well as um, communal or societal or systemic or national narcissism and we'll have plenty to say about that. But I do want to preface this particular conversation, especially for those who might not know me, but I'm a pastor and for many, many years of my life have um, been a narcissist. And that's not been something that I would have been able to acknowledge or admit or be willing to see even several years ago. But by the grace of Jesus, he has shown me where my insecurities uh, were rooted and how realigning myself with him as opposed to the fears and, and insecurities and shame I felt in my life um, makes for a much better one. And so what I want to share with you is that during this conversation, I am talking to Chuck a lot about the hope that he sees possible for narcissists, specifically narcissists in the church. And I in no way, by having this conversation with him, want to bypass or overlook the real hurt that real people, both men and women, boys and girls, have experienced at the hands of narcissists. And I pray and have repented on numerous occasions that Jesus would protect future people in my ministry from ever receiving abuse at my hands. And so I, I know some of you will jump onto this episode knowing what some of what Chuck says in his book, and you come at the narcissism in the church conversation from the side of the oppressed ones. And my heart goes out to you because I have seen it. And I know many of you and I understand, um, not personally, but because I know you, I know the pain and the hurt that you feel. But I did feel that it's only honest for me to assess this and to let you know that I approach this in sort of an awkward position. I want to side with those who are oppressed because these are the people that Jesus sides with. And yet at the exact same time, I think the majority of my narcissistic inner world has led me to be on the side of the oppressor. And so I am continually interested in the hope that Jesus has to offer the world to the narcissistic person, because that's me. And I'm not yet ready to write off Jesus's redeeming work for people like me. And at the exact same time, I'm very sensitive to the needs of those who've been hurt. And I want to make sure that you know that I'm aware of you and that I see you. And I'm thankful that Chuck balances this road a lot better than I do, which is precisely why I've invited him to come on to the, to the podcast. And so I won't give any more of an introduction. I'm just very thankful for Chuck and his insight and his wisdom and his care and his heart. And so I offer to you the conversation I have with Chuck DeGroote. Welcome back, Unbinding the Bible listeners. Today we have a treat for you. We have another By the Book episode, this time with Chuck DeGroote. And Chuck is a follower of Jesus, a husband to Sarah for 26 years and father to two amazing daughters. He's a professor of counseling and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. And he's the co-founder of New Begin House of Studies in San Francisco, where he still serves as a senior fellow. 
He's a licensed therapist, a spiritual director, and the author of several books, including Leaving Egypt, Finding God in the Wilderness Places, The Toughest People to Love, and the book Wholeheartedness. His most recent book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, is the focus of our conversation today, and I'm simply grateful to have Chuck on the show with us. Chuck, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Joshua. Um, just to uh, pull you listeners in, the, uh, the title of Chuck's book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. And um, Chuck, I can't even remember the first person who, who told me about this, but I was on a conversation on Facebook and someone recommended the book and I bought it and wow, um, wow is all I can say. So I'm excited to just pick your brain and listen to you share with us maybe a little bit about yourself and yeah. what led to the writing of this book, what have been some of the difficulties, challenges, joys that have come out of writing it, and um, and then maybe we can dive into the book itself a little. Great. Well, so I, I often say that uh, this is not a book I wanted to write. It's very different than anything I've ever written before, and um, the short backstory is that probably four years ago or so, a friend of mine said, hey, you just need to write this book. You need to write a kind of diagnostic of what narcissism looks like uh, and how it shows up in the church and in church leaders. Um, that's kind of the short story. But the longer story is that I've been I've been a pastor. I was a, was a pastor for a number of years, uh, dating back to the mid-1990s. And uh, I did a dual degree. I did a Master of Divinity, but I also did a Master of Arts in Counseling. And and from kind of my earliest years in ministry, I I uh, I began meeting with couples. This all began meeting with couples and leaders in the church, and noticing patterns at times of emotional abuse in marriages. Not really knowing as a pastor how to how to name these dynamics without ticking off these couples. You know, like without ticking mm -hmm. off the men in particular, the husbands who are. Um, acting um, in ways that were, again, emotionally and verbally abusive in, in their marriages, and yet sort of waving their their ties and offerings before me as a, as a way of, of, of an out, you know, um, out of sort of not being responsible for, for what they were doing. And, and so I learned at a, kind of an early point in my ministry uh, that I had a choice, that I could either sort of name these dynamics in these really hard contexts of local pastoral ministry where I was seeing narcissism and abuse show up, or, or I could... I could just sort of um, tuck tail and hide. And um, from that ver very early day in ministry, I, I began sort of taking the risk to, to name some of these things with some cost to me in, in the early years of ministry uh, because this was disruptive and um, obviously uh, presented some challenges in local church ministry. Oh, I'm sure. But, but uh it was it was within the next probably five years or so that I began doing psychological assessments of pastors and particularly church planters, and that's when I began to see the dynamics show up, particularly among church planters, even more. And I've just been intrigued over the years, um, interested in the question why why are why are people in the narcissistic spectrum drawn to ministry, attracted to ministry? Why do so many of the the people who I do assessments for? show up in what we call cluster B personality disorders, which includes narcissism. Um, what is it, what is it about the church when, when, you know, it was Jesus who did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, right? To quote Paul in Philippians, like Jesus, the, the uh, icon of humility. And yet so many of us, and I'll put myself in there um, and include myself in the story are so, uh, motivated by egocentricity and so self-confident. And so that's been a perplexing question for me over the last 20 plus years. Yeah. Well, do you sense that there's some disconnects in our definition of or practice of discipleship in the church? I mean, I've noticed similar things to you, but having, having seen goodness, um, a mirror by reading your book, uh, all of the brokenness and tendencies that I've lived through for many years. I mean, I mean, uh -huh. is this a, are we missing that? Are we just chosen not to address that? I mean, how do you analyze that from a, 
from a distance? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a complicated answer. Um, and uh, I, I think on the on the one hand, I think we can uh, look at the history of the church. And I believe me, I'm not going to go into a long history of the church here, but I think we can look at a, a long history of the church. And when I talk about the church, I'm talking about the church kind of universal and its uh, participation in, in um, power structures and its the, the seduction of power for uh, for the church. Think about the um, you think about the sort of conflation of church and empire that happened during the time of Constantine and how priests and bishops and popes were used in service of, of power and wars and crusades for so many centuries. And so I think that the whole question of narcissism in the church isn't something that's a new phenomenon. I just I think it takes different shapes at different times in in the church's history. I think we're at a place now where we're seeing it show up in in ways, particularly over the last twenty or thirty years, uh, on on big stages, uh, pastors with big platforms. Now, with the impact of social media, we're seeing we're seeing church leaders and pastors, organizational leaders. Um, who are competing and comparing all the time. And I think probably if I'm honest, I can get sucked into that too, you know, that sense of, gosh, do I matter if I only have this much influence or these many followers or just sell this many books? So we're living in a time of profound competition, comparison. Um, and uh, and so when, when you talk about it as a discipleship issue, I feel like that frames it really well because the question is, um, are we following Jesus? And I've got to ask myself that question too. Am I following Jesus in the way of, of uh, well, sort of the way of the kingdom that he portrays in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the hungry and thirsty. Um, or is it blessed are the successful? Blessed are the relevant. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the influencers. And that's a big question of discipleship today. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, you know, right in your introduction, you you began a discussion talking about this really intricate relationship between the individual narcissist and even cultural narcissism or, or more on a, um, you know, communal or systemic um, society. And, right. I, and I bet, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I wonder if those don't play off of one another um, at times? Because it's hard. I, I don't know if I try to analyze it and wonder which came first, the individual one or the <laughs> or the yeah. societal, which one feeds the other. And I, I don't know, do you have a do you have a read on that or how that <laughs> works together? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of both ends, you know, yeah. um, both slash end. In other words, um, I think, I, I don't think we can um, say that one feeds the other. I think it's... Um, a reciprocal relationship, right? Yeah. And um, and so, but I think I, I think the phenomenon of collective, what I call collective or even cultural narcissism, you might say, is 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 really unique and needs to sort of be taken on its own. Um, both in the way it shows up in the church, the way churches, organizations, Christian ministries can become narcissistic. Uh, and this happens, by the way, even in the absence of one primary narcissistic leader, it becomes a kind of part of the culture. And in the, I think the collective narcissism of, of groups of people within the church who um, seem to kind of unite around, um, unite around sets of issue, issues or personalities in a way that, um, that really feeds their own sense of uh, or need for power. Um, and I could go into that in more depth, but I think we're seeing this in the kind of the contemporary political moment as well, where when there is this basic sense of powerlessness or this sense among a group of people that we're losing cultural power, we are going to find a way to unite to power in a way that might actually compromise something of what we believe about the integrity of Christianity, but we're going to do it for the sake of regaining power. And so that power is very much an issue in this, in, in this conversation about narcissism. Yes, and I'm glad you brought that up because I have several points through your book highlighted there. But what you're talking about right here, you, you addressed in chapter one and on page 23, dealing with this cult collective narcissism, you say the followers feed off the leader's certainty in order to fill their own empty senses of self. And Chuck, yeah. I thought that's that was brilliant because you, you speak a lot, and I do want to get into this too, these 
false selves that narcissists have, and we have false identities, I think, as collectives, um, even as cultures. You had identified that you know we tell ourselves stories of American exceptionalism, and we hide what's underneath, um, the yeah. fragmentation or systemic racism, misogyny, addiction, shame, and so much more. And to right. come face-to-face with those and be willing to address them, um, that's a place, sadly not a lot of people want to go. Um, and I guess that's just, it is, it's just sad. It's sad to me that that's the case. Yeah. Um, it takes wow. some self-reflection, right? And I think that's, yeah. the, the sadness is in, in, in the, when you, when you wake up to the reality that we're not willing to look at ourselves in the mirror in an honest way, individually and collectively and say, how are we participating in, in this false sense of power, this, as Thomas Merton might say, this illusory sense of power. Um, but it's hard to, you know, frankly, I think we, we live our lives in such a way that um, we're all trying to survive. We're all trying to make it. We're all trying to, you know, it's a dog eat dog world, right? Yep. And um, frankly, uh, powerlessness is, is not very sexy, you know, uh, in ministries. You know, uh, I think about Henry Nouwen and his idea of uh, downward mobility. How many churches make it with a vision of downward mobility? You know, right. we're yep. going to be um, the least important church in town. <laughs> we're going <laughs> to we're going to have the most humble um, posture toward um, toward uh, our, ourselves in ministry. And like that's not how we work. We want to be bigger, better, stronger, faster, serve more, and all of that, right? And there's a kind of fundamentally narcissistic sense even in our mission statements and vision statements about how we want to impact the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what if we started just with kind of a general, maybe somebody's listening. I think we have maybe the average person has a vague idea of what narcissism is, but could you, could you kind of present us with a, with a definition that could work for us as we continue to talk? Yeah. So that's a good question. And and when we talk about narcissism, I mean, I, I'll, I'll parse this out a little bit, but most basically when we talk about narcissism, we are uh, we are using definitions that come from psychologists and um, this really thick book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Personality Disorders or Disorders. So uh, the DSM five and so um, in the DSM, this psychological sort of handbook or textbook um, of personality disorders, you find that narcissism features things like grandiosity, a grandiose sense of self, right, um, entitlement the sense that I deserve more and more and more and bigger and better and all those kinds of things, right? It also features, and this is a piece that very few people sort of get at first, is it also features a, a lack of empathy. In other words, someone who's truly narcissistic can, can't really can't really put himself in the shoes of another, isn't really able to get outside of his own frame of, of view and get into the experience of another. And then we also see Finally, what they call um, impairments in intimacy and identity. In other words, there are there are um, there there are things that come up in relationships and at work that end up um, being disruptive. Uh, you'll notice that the marriage might be kind of disruptive, or the work relationships might be toxic. And when you take all of those together, you sort of have a um, what the DSM-5 calls a definition of narcissistic personality disorder. That's a more grandiose version of narcissism. Um, I think what I try to do in the book is I try to, I try to use nine different ways of talking about narcissism through the Enneagram. Some people might be familiar with the Enneagram, but I think the Enneagram is an important lens through which we can look at different personality styles and ways of relating and coping in the world as a way of saying, you know, narcissism can show up in a grandiose way in particular personalities, but in more subtle or more covert ways in other kinds of personalities. Uh, and, and so let's not just have a kind of one size fits all definition of grandiose narcissism. Yeah. Well, that covert ways, um, that, that describes me as a person. And, um, I, I love your language of the false self. And, um, I came across a book several years ago by David Benner, called The Gift of Being Yourself, and he talked a lot with Merton's idea of the false self. And Chuck, I had actually read that not even as, you know, oh, I'm intrigued by this, but that book explained my life. And so hmm. I, 
I approached this topic, you know, reading this book on someone's recommendation. I mean, I literally approached it with, oh goodness. I mean, I know that I have these covert, um, passive aggressive um, issues of narcissism and I've mm. been in pastoral ministry for several years. Um, and so, but reading your book has been so liberating, I guess, because now I, I'm able to look at the narcissistic idea in the church and see not just personally, wow, here's what I was doing that was hurting people, but then flipping it around and seeing, oh, let's look at it through the lens of individuals who've been hurt by people yeah. in the church. Oh, wow. This is a collective and a societal thing too. Oh, then that must mean that there are whole groups of people who've been on the receiving end of a societal narcissism. And Chuck, it's just blossoming into something much, much bigger than us. But I'm so glad you brought kind of the backside of it mm -hmm. because it's easy to think with certain personalities. I'm an Enneagram four and I'm just this idealist and I'm, I'm a heavily um, emotional person. I'm a feeler. And so I um, never thought, well, I'm not that overt jerk of a bossy bully. Oh, yeah. but I was a bully in uh, passive aggressive ways. Yeah. So, um, it's man, so honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. but let's, let's talk for just a minute. If we could, I, knowing what I know about narcissism now and knowing what it took Jesus to do to get a hold of me, he didn't condemn me. He didn't attack me. He basically met me in a really fragile state. And you say a lot of that about what the internal world of narcissists mm. is really like. Could you, could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is, this can be a harder conversation. I'll just say this for those who might be listening. Um, it's gonna be a little bit of a harder conversation because this, this is a conversation that attempts to humanize someone who's narcissistic. And okay. yeah. uh, I, I have worked, like I said, for over 20 years with victims and survivors of narcissistic abuse. And for some, especially those who've experienced this more recently, the, the last thing that they want to hear is that there's a human being inside there, you know? Yeah. And so I just, I want to acknowledge that for those who are listening, who are like, well, wait a second. I, what about us? What about those of us who've been impacted? But, yeah. but I also think it's important for us to recognize that uh, hurt people hurt people. Um, or as Richard Rohr says, those who don't transform their pain are bound to transmit it. Um, they'll project it. They'll transmit it. They'll place it onto others. And I, I think that what ends up happening, what we see in narcissists and narcissistic abuse, is that inevitably there is a story of pain. There's a story of trauma. There's a story of abuse. Now, there's a kind of complicated causation or etiology to, to narcissism because there is there is a kind of nature and nurture component to both. There's a disposition perhaps to narcissism, but there's always a story of trauma, of bullying, of feeling left out, feeling less than, um, where, where inevitably and, and without even the person knowing, it sort of happens unwittingly and subconsciously, there's an armor developed. They begin to develop this really thick armor Imagine someone who has been through pain saying, I never, ever want to feel that pain again. So, you know, uh, I'm thinking back to a pastor I worked with uh, a number of years ago who experienced profound abuse at the ages of seven and eight years old. Um, didn't wake up one morning and say, I don't want to feel that anymore, but developed unconscious coping strategies so that by the time he was a teenager, he was the bully. And, and now at 45 years old was being called out by a staff for being the bully. And when we got down to the, the honest reality of his story, and when he disclosed some things to me, there was this recognition that he was uh, sort of the, the other side of the story was that he was a deeply ashamed, insecure, um, anxious human being. And, uh, and it, it took a lot of courage for him to go there. As it turns out, he didn't stay there for very long because um, he even viewed my, my, uh, my work with him as a threat. And so he doubled down and became even more bullish after that. But there was this one moment that I had with him where I was like, oh, there you are. You, there is a human being inside of there. And I think 
that's the thing that we've got to recognize is that there's so much pain in order to inflict that kind of pain. You've got to be in a lot of pain. Yeah. Well, and I'm really glad you mentioned too. Uh, I realize even as I talk about these topics that I, I am coming, trying to come out of a lifestyle of being a narcissist. So sure. I want to hear the good news and the hope that there are for narcissists, but that in no way means I don't sympathize greatly with those who have been hurt mm -hmm. by narcissists. And I think one of the troubles in the church that I'm hearing about more and more is that the, the focus of the understanding has been forced onto victims to be the ones to understand they're a hurt person. Well, that may be true, but that's not for the victim in that moment to try to uh, coddle the narcissist. I mean, that's, yeah, that's right. that not their right. job at all. I, I want to understand this because I see it in myself. Mm -hmm. I see it projected across our, our whole society right now, if I'm honest. And, um, yeah. and I want to understand how to address it because fighting shame with shame doesn't work, but you don't know that's what you're doing unless you know that narcissistic behaviors are rooted in shame. That's um, right. That's right. And I'm glad, you know, you said the word, I, I didn't even use the word shame, but that's what we're talking about here. We talk about shame. We're talking about a, uh, a profound sense of disconnection, even fear of vulnerability. Um, someone who's ashamed is, uh, is someone who is in, in, in a sense um, at some level incapable of making real human contact. And um, out of that shame, they develop sort of styles of, of um, protecting themselves. And so I talk about the shame rage dynamic, you know, where um, on the other side of shame is often an enraged and bullying abuser um, trying to keep his shame at bay, right? I yeah. don't want to feel that. I don't ever want to be that vulnerable person again. I don't ever want to be the person who is on the other side of this. And so this is why why it seems that when we're talking about leaders who are narcissistic, some people will say to me, it's kind of paradoxical because they seem like bullies and yet they seem to have such a thin skin. You push just a little bit and they react so strongly. And that's true because there's such a soft underbelly. There's such a sort of terrified little boy or little girl inside. Yeah. Well, you, you brought in, you know, narcissists from, you know, uh, classic mythology, but, but you, you said that narcissists did not, or narcissists did not suffer from an overabundance of self-love, but rather from its deficiency. Mm -hmm. The curse of narcissists is immobilization, not out of love for himself, but out of dependency upon his image. Yeah. And, and I think that's the idea of that false self you you said they're so thin skinned and mm. and that's true and and I carried that for years I mean I know what that feels mm. like um but I loved how you talked and and maybe I'm not even sure you dipped into this in several chapters but could you talk to us a little bit about that fragile little boy or girl right mm -hmm. who goes into hiding and then this protective false self takes the lead you talked later about having these different different parts of us that <laughs> come to the surface. I mean, goodness, Chuck, it's like we, we snap in rage, right? And, and someone yeah. looks and says, wow, you're acting like a 10 year old. And the strange thing is we are actually that 10 year old at that time. Exactly <laughs> it's right. not just a metaphor. I mean, it's real. So can yeah. you talk to us about some of that reality and what's going on there? Yeah. I often tell my students now that I'm a, a seminary prof. Maturity is, is about befriending the many different parts of us, um, not the many different emotions within us. But I think in, in a sense, they're like different parts of us that show up in different ways. I, you know, and most of us can identify, we wake, wake up on any given morning and there, you know, there's a part of us that wants to just kind of stay in bed and pull the covers over our head. Um, there's another part of us that may, may be terrified. Um, another part of us that might be uh, rearing and ready to get out of bed and charge into the day. Um, there's, like you said, the part of us that snaps and finds himself or herself in a rage. And it's like, how, how did that happen? Um, there's, there's the part that looks at pornography late at night uh, when the spouse is in bed. And like, who, who is that guy? Who's that girl? Who, who did that? You know, and so we're we're kind of, um, we're a mystery, you know, because there are these different faces that we wear uh, and, and, and we can show up 
uh, you know, to work in, in a relationship at the bar at night with some friends uh, with these different faces on. We take one face off, put the next face on. Um, one of the things with narcissism that I'll often say is that the grandiose self or the narcissistic self is like the only face they know. They become addicted to kind of living in this more grandiose way. And so they're at, most of us are kind of in touch enough with our own with our own anxiety, with our own sadness, with our own confusion to be able to have an honest conversation. So I might be able to wake up one morning and um, say to my wife, hey, I, I don't know what it is, but I'm feeling just really anxious today. I've got this podcast with this guy Yoder, and uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know if I have anything to say or anything to offer. M- most of us are in touch enough with the variety of different emotions within ourselves to be able to say, "I'm scared, I'm anxious, I'm terrified, I'm hopeful." But narcissists are out of touch with their emotions, and I think that's part part of what we're dealing with here. Is like the they they only know how to show up in one mode, and that's sort of um, depending on the the, whatever face of the Enneagram they're showing up with, it tends to be a mode that is profoundly self-protective, that keeps them at all costs protected from any sense of vulnerability, any feeling of shame, um, any connection to their own anxiety. And so uh, they're really split off, in a sense, from um, their heart, a really soft, tender, vulnerable human heart. And that's that's scary when when people have been wounded so significantly that they're cut off from their own heart. Yeah. Well, and you had talked about it in your book as well, that, you know, churches don't hire, you know, healthy churches don't hire narcissistic pastors because they can spot one a mile away, which then makes you wonder when churches do hire (laughs) narcissistic pastors and don't see it and neither does he, um, then you wonder what levels of this, I, I, of false selves is just circulating, um, unhindered, you know, around the, around the congregation or around yeah. whatever culture allowed that yeah. to happen. Um, yeah. and, and that's just, I, I guess, I guess, I, I guess a question I have is, is if there's this shame and this fragility mm-hmm. and, and masking over, and now I've got to protect and bolster up this you know, false self all the time. First of all, that's got to be exhausting. Exhausting, yeah. Um, and and I wonder at times. I, I've reread Jesus's words at the end of Matthew eleven differently in recent years. You know, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I wonder if if any of that applies um, to just all the energy it takes to. Yes keep that fabricated self afloat yeah. and make sure everybody else sees you as you want to be seen. That's it. Um, yeah. You've named it really well because I think, I think the churches want the false self. They want the gifted, um, smart, uh, inspiring communicator. And they're willing to overlook uh, the shadow side, you know, the, like, like we, we all do it. We all play, play into this. Uh, when I, when I update my CV um, or when someone up, updates their resume, we don't update it with, you know, I disappointed, uh, I disappointed these people this year. I failed at this this week. You know, we don't, we don't add those things to a resume. We talk about all the things we've done well. And likewise, I think churches look for uh, what are the gifts he brings? Uh, what, is, uh, what are the skills that she offers? And so we sort of sweep the other stuff under the rug, and um, that stuff inevitably inevitably comes out, uh, even if it comes out sideways in an elder meeting or to, you know, in a one-on-one pastoral counseling session. So the the question I think that we're left with is: Are we are we willing to uh, are we willing to sort of change the paradigm, so to speak? Are we willing to be, become churches that are interested in the whole person? Uh, are we willing to ask questions that invite pastor t- pastors to disclose more of what's going on in their lives, not just their gifts, talents, but their fears, their anxieties, um, some of the skeletons in their closet? Uh, that, that would be a pretty radical paradigm change, though. Imagine coming to an interview and saying, you know, I wrestle with uh, depression and panic attacks. Sometimes yep. on a Sunday morning, before I get up and, and preach, I've got to take a Xanax because I've got so much anxiety in my body. I don't have another way of calming down. And it's been this way for a long time because I've got trauma in my past. And yet 
I'm so grateful to be able to get up and preach God's word. I mean, how much more honest would that be? Wow. Yes. And I wonder if it takes someone in the pastoral search committee or whoever it is who's doing that job, if it takes a level of health in them to even be able to pose that question. Do you think that's true? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But I, I think it's complicated, though. And I'll, I'll give you sort of an example of how this gets complicated. Uh, I have been the psychological assessor on church planning teams. In other words, church planning assessment teams where there might be a, you know, a piece of it. Usually these church planning assessments are over the course of a weekend or a few days. And there are a variety of different tasks involved in the planter and the planter's spouse is there, maybe other planters. And inevitably, those of us who are psychological assessors, like we are the bearers of the bad news, you know, and I can't tell you how many times I've sat there and they've said, wow, this guy, let's just say, Jake, man, Jake, he's great. He's already raised $300,000. Did you hear that sermon? Man, he knocked it out of the park. He's got good looking guy. His wife is great. They're really charismatic. He's going to be a great church planter. And then I come in and I say, hey, I met with Jake and his wife and they've got some significant marital issues and she's not entirely sure she even wants to be a minister's wife. Um, she talked about privately about some of uh, Jake's rage and anger and how it comes out in their marriage. He kind of spiked in the narcissistic spectrum in his testing. I've got some yellow, maybe even red flags. And, and what I hear often is, oh, you psychologists, you're always looking at the dark side, the negative side of things. He's great probably just a little rough around the edges, but you know, we'll give him, get him a good coach and everything will be fine. And I can't tell you how many times scenarios like that have played out. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. So then you're accused of being the dark side of things. When, if we look at the way Jesus, <laughs> Jesus always seems to be interested in, well, what does he say? Right. Um, the lights come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are right. evil. But he's saying, look, I'm here to draw you out of the darkness that's right. into the light. And and that's I right. guess that's the conundrum I'm faced with. And maybe it's the hypocritical or the ironic hypocrisy. I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. But to see those very dynamics not being addressed in a church context where we claim we are proclaiming the good news of the one who's come to set us free from all That's of right. these enslaving tendencies. Right. Um, is that because we have reduced the gospel to, I don't know, sin management, like Dallas Willard yeah. says, or have we reduced it to just some intellectual affirmation or that we're really too afraid to address that? Or is it all of the above? Yeah. All the above. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. I, I was having a conversation with a friend this morning over coffee. And he, he was talking about his brother-in-law was defending a kind of a, a mega church narcissistic leader who had a pretty profound fall from grace. And, um, and this person was saying, but look at the fruits of the ministry. Look at all the people who got saved. Look at all the books that were written. Look, you know, all the, and my, my friend who's a pastor said, well, I thought the fruits of the spirit were kindness, gentleness, mm. peace, patience, self-control, of which he exhibited none of these these features, right? And so I think it one of the things that I continually point out is the absence of character in our conversations. We'll talk about gifts and fruit in particular kind of ways that are, I think, caught up in a larger conversation of of success, of um, competence, and not of character. And I think that's a real problem. Yeah. Well, you talked uh, towards the end where, you know, when you get into how do we, how do we work toward healing ourselves, healing the church? And you, you just said that all stories of transformation necessarily take us on a cruciform journey. And um, obviously beginning with the leader, the leader ought to be the first one in line to embrace this cruciformity. But like you said, who wants to talk about weaknesses on their resume? Who wants to... <laughs> who wants to exalt the things that they've not done yeah. well and, and yeah. pay attention to those things. Yeah. Um, wow. So do you still consult with church planting groups and, and, <clears throat> and church planters? Huh. Some haven't invited me back. Um, mm. 
Yeah, I, I do. And in fact, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged today. Uh, you can ask me tomorrow if I'm encouraged, but I'm encouraged today um, because I had a recent conversation with a group from Canada who are saying, hey, we've, we've read your book and we want to discover new ways, ways that we're not yet familiar with, new ways of identifying narcissism in potential church planners. And um, we realize that it might be hard. We realize that it may rule out people who we think are gifted on paper, but we're interested in having more integrity in our process. And if that's, if that's what's happening as a result of some folks maybe reading this book and uh, applying it to their local contexts, um, then, then I'm grateful to God for that. Uh, I, I do think though that, um, this, this, the conversation that we're having hasn't been sort of fully integrated into a, a, a larger vision of leadership training and, you know, even seminary training. I'm a seminary professor now, you know, and it's, um, I'm thankful that at my seminary, this is a pretty vibrant and vital conversation, but I'm, I'm often, in conversation with others who say, you know, I feel like I'm so alone trying to, trying to shout into the darkness, you know, Hey, we got to pay attention to this and no one wants to listen to me. Well, I'm glad you had at least one good conversation from that group in Canada. That's an encouragement. And and I definitely have been recommending your book to anybody that I come across, not that 10 or 12 individuals will make a big difference, but I, I think, um, this is a conversation that we have to have because you've managed to keep inseparable this, well, the gospel, first of all, just who Jesus is, how and, and where he meets us. And, and it's almost like you've invited us to the deeper and the darker we're willing to let him go with us as individuals, as churches, as a country, whatever, the more freedom and joy and hope there actually is is, but it's not going to be easy. Um, we definitely can't be coerced into doing it. I mean, I, I kind of hear it as an invitation. Um, but goodness, you've, I'm sure you've got lots more stories of just resistance and other things where people aren't sure they're, they're ready to go there. Um, Yeah. I'm with you on that. And I appreciate your enthusiasm, um, and recommending the book. Um, I, uh, I, I hope it's helpful to people. I, I, I think it's at least a conversation starter. I, I'm really grateful that there are some friends of mine, um, people who are excellent writers and, and practitioners, uh, folks like Diane Langberg and Wade Mullen, who are writing books on power, authority, um, uh, organizations and organizational abuse. And I, I have a feeling that over the next few years, we're going to see some really great contributions to a larger conversation on this that'll be helpful to um, all sorts of folks in and around the church. Yeah. Well, I saw a Facebook post today, um, Kristen Dumay, who recently wrote a book, Jesus and John Wayne, and um, had listed several books on a little bookshelf and snapped a photo of them, wrote an article about lots of these books that are challenging these power structures, the, the power worshipers or the book Unholy, and your book was actually in her little lineup yeah. there. Um, I have several of those myself. I'm working through them because I'm watching a really intriguing dynamic spring almost fluidly between yeah. these prominent individual narcissistic leaders inside and outside the church. And I'm watching large groups of people love that and not have any ounce of ability to see it as critiquable. I, I mean, it, it's stunning to me. So I, I love what you're saying because I, I'm seeing the same thing. I'm not the one writing the books. I'm just reading them. But I, th- I do think in the next several years, more and more of this is coming to the surface. Yeah. And I think the church, I, I've found a little bit of disheartening experiences, not to the extent that you have, but in terms of trying to bring this up to the church mm-hmm. and watching people quickly retreating into safe zones and defending people and no, no, you're off base. You just don't like him or whatever. Um, instead of being open to maybe, maybe we have some areas that could be critiqued. <laughs> yeah, That's a, yeah. always a possibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, would That's like right. to jump jump in for just a minute um, into your chapter six, where you just you talk about this. So this is right here a contribution to the um, understanding narcissistic systems. Mm-hmm. And um, you said you know systems are powerful; they hide invisible forces that work below the surface. And just as the narcissist requires external validation to confirm how special or great she is. So a narcissistic system requires external validation for how special and great it is. Um, You say a narcissistic system, whether a church denomination or network of churches delights in itself disconnected from the reality of the, of the system's dysfunction or narcissistic sepsis, the members collude in a collective act of glancing lovingly into the pool of water that reflects back the ideal image. Yeah. So here's a million dollar question for you. How do we speak into that, critique that, but do it in a way that people who love to look at their ideal collective image can actually begin to have that image dismantled? Because I'm having a hard time doing this. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to ask you to ask the question again, cause I, I want to make sure that I answer it. Um, okay. Ask it. Yeah. Just ask it again. So I make sure that I understand you. Yeah. So I think, how do we as leaders speak into this fragile looking at their own reflection in such a way that people can hear us? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I, I think uh, I, I'm going to begin by saying that's really difficult because narcissism, narcissistic people, um, by definition, are resistant and are defensive, and so it's it's very hard for a narcissistic individual or organization, uh, let's say, to hear feedback, and in fact, just the idea, just the thought of feedback or pushback. Um, will evoke significant resistance. And so uh, this is dangerous territory we're talking about. And, uh, and and this is where there are a couple of things that we can think about, and I'll just kind of name that are at least uh, precursors to, to the kind of work that you're talking about. One is um, for those of us who want to have these kinds of conversations, who want to maybe address it, want to push in, um, maybe maybe even bring a conversation to our elder board or to our organization, we need to make sure that we've done our own work first. And so whenever folks come to me and say, hey, I, I want to sound the alarm on so-and-so, this, it's driving me crazy in my organization, I'll say, hey, are you in therapy? Are you talking about this with someone who uh, understands what's going on inside of you? Uh it can be a really traumatizing thing to engage in naming these kinds of dynamics. And and I can guarantee you, because I've experienced it, you will get pushback in significant kinds of ways. I mean, I've gotten cease and desist uh, letters from lawyers and all sorts of different things um, from just making general comments about narcissism. And so uh, you've got to do your own work, get into therapy, recognize what's going on inside of you so that you can be the kind of person who shows up um, non-anxiously in the midst of hard conversations, knowing that you're going into the lion's den. So, so I will often say, secondly, that um, a narcissist will always respond poorly to confrontation. There's, there's no way for me as a therapist uh, in consultation, uh, whether it comes from an elder or a friend or even a spouse, confrontation is a no-win. The defenses go way, way, way up. And so I've got to find a way to get it sort of around those defenses. And, and that means actually, uh, be, for me, a lesson learned about 15 years ago or so was I was doing, I was exhausting myself doing work with narcissists because I was going in with my defenses up. And as I did some of my own work, I realized I'm human and I've got stuff and they're human. They've got stuff. Let's just, let me just meet them on a very human level. And begin asking questions about how, how's it going? It must be exhausting to do the work that you do. You know, so that's different. Instead of going in and saying, hey, so-and-so said that you're a bully, going in and just saying, so what's it like to be a lead pastor? It must be exhausting for you to, to you know, to, to, to preach seven times on a Sunday. And, and then beginning to have, have those humanizing kinds of 
conversations that allow us perhaps to build whatever trust that we can build. Um, I think that whenever we're, we do the work of, of engaging an organization, a narcissistic leader or narcissistic organization for the sake of healing, um, we've got to realize that most likely um, we're dealing, particularly when we're dealing with narcissistic personality disorder, um, we're, we're dealing with people who don't change at a fundamental level. There's a, there's a spectrum of narcissism. So not everyone has narcissistic personality disorder. And some of us just have narcissistic tendencies. And there, there's great possibility for healing and redemption there. But we're, when we're dealing with full-blown NPD, diagnosable personality disorder, uh, we're dealing with someone who is radically self-protective and cut off from vulnerability. And so we really have to, we have to go in um, with uh, a mindful of that and mindful that there's a, a larger task, as I think about it, a larger task of healing the church um, that, uh, that becomes my priority, whether or not this leader stays or goes or whatever happens with him or her. Um, I've got to be really focused on the debris field, field of damage, how people have been impacted. And that healing generally takes a long time. And so, listen, you're going into the lion's den no matter what. There's no, there's no way of, of kind of framing it that's nicer than that. Um, I, I think you, you, you want to go in um, with great care and sensitivity and having done your own work. You want to know what it, what it means to be sort of like a lion, lion tamer, <laughs> having done your own work so that you can go in not confrontationally, but gently. Wow. Yeah, it's that, that that's that's excellent advice. Um, I actually am in therapy right now, um, working through lots of my own stuff, and I think that's part of what's happening is I'm finding tremendous freedom and joy, um, almost in just Jesus continues to meet me in places where I'm a messed up wreck, and then He shows me how life can be so much better. Um, on the other side of that. And so I yeah. want that for other people, but I watch those defenses go up and I watch mm -hmm. people get very disgruntled. And so yeah. um, because of this systems thing is what's been gripping me. I have been so oblivious to that for most of my life. I've reduced the Christian faith to just you and Jesus, you know, this personal decision, which it is personal, um, always personal, but it's, it's never private. So there's always a, a public manifestation, um, a collective manifestation, if you will. But yeah. Chuck, maybe, maybe kind of one last thing to sort of talk about is just this tight-knit relationship that I see between the church as a collective in this world and right now on a societal level. Um, you, you started your book right off with, you know, Western culture is a narcissistic culture. And I don't think anybody would deny that. But what I'm noticing that's strange is how um, polarizing things are becoming on the political spectrum and how um, maybe that fragile, you know, you, you can't, I can't concede any one point from my party lest I think I'm giving away the whole thing. So therefore, I'm just going to put up every defense and it's, you know, this person versus that view and this and that. And I'm watching Christians sacrifice rooted beliefs in the gospel mm -hmm. for political alliances. Um, and so just let me just re read your words here and maybe you can add a couple thoughts to it. But you say the collective false self is powerful and it covers a mountain of hidden rage and shame. I see how ordinary lay Christians can be blind to dangerous and toxic narcissism in political leaders, whether on the left or right. There is a dangerous collusion with power, and I'm mindful that amid our own anxiety and shame, we unwittingly align with unhealthy and powerful leaders who offer us a false sense of control and identity. Um, I, I just, I loved how you kept weaving it between, here's a broken person, mm -hmm. here's the harm they cause others, here's broken system, here's the harm it causes, here's how you go into both, and just all through the book, but what what would you say kind of to this being drawn to the the power the unhealth and and where you see the church today um in that discussion yeah gosh wow um 
That's that's a great question, and I think I probably I probably uh, see it on multiple levels. Um, I, I think I'm I'm going to highlight one in particular. Um, we're recording this, uh, and I, I may ruffle some feathers, so I'll just warn you of that. Please go right ahead. Yep. Um, <laughs> prior to a, a major uh, presidential election. Yep. And um, I'm mindful that there there are uh, many, many evangelicals who felt uh, dis- disenfranchised. It feels as if religion is under attack, right? secularism is on the rise. And, uh, and, and I think there's a conversation, there needs to be a conversation around, so what do we do with feelings like that? Um, do we align with power, even when that power is toxic? And I think evidenced in, in kind of narcissistic personalities and strategies of a, of a president um, what do we do with our sense of powerlessness and how do Christians, how have Christians responded historically in places of powerlessness? And I think you could get into a really significant conversation about how Christians throughout the history of the church have responded in times of powerlessness, sometimes um, th- discipled in the imagination of Christ, becoming people who run um, toward the powerless in the midst of their powerlessness. Um, and um, embrace suffering, even to the point of, of their own um, persecution and pain, and others who become um, complicit with the powers and the principalities, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and who, instead of uh, embracing their own powerlessness, uh, run to the powerful, run to narcissistic leaders, um, run to popes and princes and politicians who will make them feel just a little bit better in the midst of their power, powerlessness. And I think it's a kind of moment of reckoning for the church for us to kind of do some self-examination around what do we do with powerlessness? We worship, uh, we follow the powerless one, Jesus, you know, yeah. um, whose arms are spread out on the cross for the sake of the world. Um, this is nonviolent love, you know, and so how do we demonstrate that nonviolent love in a world that seems hell bent on on a kind of violent um, uh, retribution? And uh, I I don't have the answer to that question, Joshua. I just I I feel a kind of a profound sense of grief around how I and so many others seem to participate in the principalities and powers rather than being rather than living an alternative way and modeling an alternative way that looks like discipleship in Christ. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the humility because I don't think we do it well. And I want to keep having these conversations because the more we begin to see the differences between what we fall in love with and what Jesus has called us to fall in love with, um, it'll do us a a load of good, I think, to continue Mm -hmm. to come back to who he is and how he modeled um, humility and love and compassion and the father's care for the world. Um, Well, Chuck, this has been such a breath of fresh air. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about this. Yeah. Hey, you're welcome. It's, it's really good to be with you, Joshua, and get to know you a little bit. And thank you for your, thank you for your humility. Um, Thank you for showing up in a way that uh, I think, um, demonstrates the kind of humility that uh, I long for myself. And I think, I hope that people long for, especially when confronted, you know, with a book like this, it says some hard things about us. So thank right. you. Well, you're welcome. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, if any of, of my listeners want to find you or follow you, are you on social media or do places you would direct them to go that I can put links to? Yeah. So I, I've got a website, chuckdegroat.net. I'm on social media uh, at Chuck DeGroat. That's D-E-G-R-O-A-T. Across the different platforms and um, trying to participate non-narcissistically. <laughs> uh, well, that's wonderful. You you did that today um, really well, and uh, saw a couple of things you you've been posting recently, and they're just they just come across with such love and, and hope um, for the church. And uh, yes, this morning you you posted, you know, people mature in relation to their honest and truthful engagement with their complicated and messy family story. Yeah. It's the same for churches, organizations, and nations. And I just think, you know, you, you're able to say such weighty truth. It's just, there it is. And, and I just, yeah. I love that about your stuff and 
continuing to, you know, follow you. And I've enjoyed this time with you today. So thank you. Hey, thank you for it. It's good being with you. Good being with you too. Hope you have a a great weekend. Thank you. All righty. Bye-bye. What a great conversation that was with Chuck DeGroat. Again, Chuck, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Listeners, I'm glad you've chosen to tune in and are all made it all the way to this point in the episode. Definitely encourage you to go out and buy When Narcissism Comes to Church, read it and devour it. And um, hopefully some of the things that Chuck and I were able to talk about will be an encouragement to you. Again, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, it's so great to have you here. Just a little bit about Unbinding the Bible. Um, It is a podcast, a conviction of mine that on a conversation Jesus had with two of his followers on the road to Emmaus, who thought based on their reading of the Bible that the coming Messiah was going to conquer and rule. And when he suffered and died instead, they concluded that he wasn't their Messiah. Instead, what Jesus invites them to consider is that perhaps they hadn't been reading the Bible correctly. And it's a conviction of mine that the same thing is still happening today, even in churches. And so the purpose of unbinding the Bible is for us to go back to the beginning and to allow the Bible to raise its own concerns and its own questions, and then to provide us with the answers that sometimes are not the questions or the answers that we typically think the Bible is out to ask and then to address. And so we've been walking through various portions of the Old Testament, various portions of the New, and for the last goodness, year and a half, we've been doing our best at taking some of the themes that were addressed in the beginning of the Bible and applying them and showing that how through Jesus, the book of Revelation can actually um, come alive and take on a whole new, whole new look for the world. So I would encourage you to, to dive in and to listen to other episodes. If not, thanks for tuning into this one with Chuck. And I hope you have a great week Unbinding the Bible listeners. I hope you have a great week as well. We'll be back in Revelation, starting in Revelation chapter 19 next week. Talk to you then.